All right. Hey, there we go, Roger. Thanks for joining us right. tonight. Sure. Okay. Glad, we're, to be here. glad you're here myself. Folks, welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. It's been a long week, folks. Get those feet up on your comfy chair. Relax. You've worked hard all week. You really have. You deserve this hour for yourself. So get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. Settle in your most comfy chair. Take this time for yourself. Political consultant and strategist Roger Stone is with us tonight. Yay. Stone has played a key role in the election of President Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and Donald Trump. Stone is credited with closing down the 2000 Florida recount, which made George W. Bush president. Roger Stone has been called possibly the most dangerous man in politics. I don't believe that. Is that true, Roger? I don't believe well, I mean, the perfect that. example. I mean, it, while Go it's ahead. technically true, for example, that I shut down the recount, what people don't point out is I shut down the recount of the same ballots that had already been counted twice, and the Democrats were desperate to try to squeeze a few more votes out of this, even though they had been counted and put away. So it's, you know, it's, it is not as outrageous, of course, as it sounds when depicted by the liberal media. The Washington Post, speaking of which, has called him Richard Nixon's dirty trickster. He has been banned from CNN for a derogatory tweet he made at a commentator. Um, he also claims to be the best well-dressed man in politics. And I'll have you know, Roger, if you could see me, I'm sporting a brand new tie in anticipation for your interview tonight. I went out and got a brand new tie. What do you think, folks? I'm honored. I'm honored. <laughs> All uh, Canadians not that are I think. Hearing. You know, not that I think that um, everybody should dress like me. Everybody needs uh, men, I'm talking about, should develop their own style based on what they do for a living, based on what they do for sports activities. But I favor kind of an old traditional style of British tailoring that was worn by Cary Grant, Gary Cooper, Fred Astaire, the Duke of Windsor, uh, uh uh, Porphyria, I always pronounce this, Porfirio Rubarosa, and others. It's a classic uh, style of tailoring that was developed in the 30s and has really never gone out of style. I dress the same way. I try to be uh, as uh, debonair and classy as possible in all aspects of my life. Now, just last week on Thursday, Roger had his Twitter account shut down. Has that been reopened now, Roger? Yeah, they give they give you a time out, <clears throat> uh, and in this particular case, there is a, was a uh, an individual who works for Media Matters for America, which is a left wing pressure group that really functioned as apologists for Bill and Hillary Clinton. Any time anyone in mainstream media would criticize those angels, the Clintons, well, the the Media Matters people would do all kinds of boycotting and uh, other net based trickery. Uh, to try to distract from the fundamental questions of the honesty and integrity and record of the Clintons. A woman who works there named Crater has been stalking my wife and I on Facebook, has been, uh, has been, you know, kind of all over our social media. And I just I thought it was important to let her know that the bully tactics that they employed in the last election are just not going to be, they're not going to go by the wayside. Now, most feminists I know argue that men and women should be treated equally. That means that you can criticize women in politics without people saying, ah, you see, Stone is attacking a woman. Well, when a woman is using these kind of bully tactics uh, and harassment, yeah, I had to call her out. It's just the way it is. I didn't find it terribly incendiary, but you see, as soon as I do anything the slightest bit controversial, the Media Matters people lobby furiously to have me banned because the answer on the left is always censorship. They can't, they can't debate you on the merits, so they want to go to a Stalinistic style of censorship, essentially saying that what you think, what you write, what you believe, that has no value. Only the things they believe are the truth, so to speak. Coincidentally today, I live in a city, Roger, called Kingston, Canada. Geographically, it's about an hour and a half north of Syracuse, just across the street, actually, <laughs> almost, from where Alan Dulles was born in Watertown, New York. And it's nestled right between, evenly, Montreal and Toronto. We have a CFB here. A CFB is a Canadian Forces base and an RMC, Royal Military College. This is our Annapolis. This is where we teach all the kids 
to become generals in, in their futures. But also, it is a hubbub. I guess our version of the FBI, which would be CSIS and also mm-hmm. the RCMP. And today I just happened to run into a friend of mine, and uh, I'm not going to tell you what part of the he's from, because I don't want to give too much away. And we were talking about the YouTube ad fiasco that's going on right now and how YouTube is no longer allowing anybody with a controversial, in other words, a show like this, voice to make any money. In other words, they're trying to silence what? They're trying to silence the free, free speech, exchange. Free speech. Exactly. Free, free, free speech. No, this is, this, this is this a very, is very broad problem. Uh, this is happening at the Stone Cold Truth, my website. This is happening to Alex Jones at Infowars.com. It's happening to the Daily Caller and to Breitbart. They are manipulating the algorithms to limit your reach, and then they're just essentially rejecting anything they don't agree with as, oh, that's fake news. We don't have to post that. We don't have to show it. And then they've hired these third-party groups like Snopes.com and and uh, factcheck.com, neither one of which is objective, both of which lean left, to say the least, to be the arbiter. Here's their problem. This is a violation of U.S. antitrust law. This is also, I I think, a ripe issue for a class action suit. Uh, The American people having enjoyed a robust, vibrant alternative media, left and right, are not going to let the toothpaste piece be put back in the tube. In other words, they're not going to go back to the days when ABC, NBC, and CBS were the arbiters of anything that happened, and if they didn't report it, it didn't happen. I think those days are over, and uh, the Trump administration, I think, is a little behind the curve on this. After all, it is the rise of that alternative media that make Trump's election even possible. And of course, if you limit the alternative media, if you restore the monopoly on the dissemination of political information to the three networks and the two cable networks, well, then the prospects for a Trump re-election would be zero. I'm not going to reveal his identity at all, but I will say this. He is in charge of attacks mm-hmm. for the Canadian government. I was telling him about what's happening on YouTube, and to my YouTube channel and specifically, where my income from it has dropped 90% in 24 hours. And I'm not kidding, folks. This is how... No, I've seen the same it. exact thing, so yep. I totally believe you. Yeah. So I said... You know, is there something going on here I should know about it? He said, Brent, it's cyber attack number 101. He said, it's as simple as this. What they do is they draw you in with some kind of free service. Let's say YouTube. Stick up all your videos. And then they say, let's get you dependent on using YouTube. So they say, okay, we're going to give you some money for putting videos up. And then all of a sudden they've got you. They're the only game in town. Yes. So what do they do to control you? They start turning off channels that they feel are advertiser unfriendly, they like to call it. So in other words, there is an agenda. So I said, specifically, I said, is there an agenda? Is the government not cognizant of what's going on? He said, what government? That scared the hell out of me. You know, Brendan, in honesty, in the United States, this is authorized because uh, Barack Obama signed a, uh, a, a piece of authorization, uh, appropriations authorization under the Defense Department that, that essentially sets up a national censorship board. Uh, it is, uh, it's an, I have a piece up on the Stone Cold Truth right now uh, about this particular issue. And what you find when you research it is that, that the, uh, the, the government is authorized to determine what is and is not fake news. They're authorized to use third party, um, you know, uh, third parties to make this decision. Uh, this was actually done in the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2017, the NDAA in which it is specifically called the Countering Disinformation and Propaganda Act, which establishes a ministry of truth, uh, which is allowed to develop, decide who is responsible for developing and disseminating fact-baked narratives, and then disallow everything else. This is the most egregious violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution I have ever seen. It's really quite extraordinary. 
It's terrifying. It really is. And I'll give you a good example. I was shaking this afternoon when he told me that because he is so high up in the intelligence services here. And he said, yeah, there is an agenda without question. And you can see it now on Facebook, uh, all of the uh, the social media, let's Twitter, for example, you just know, said that for making a, a free speech um, on Twitter that your Twitter account had been suspended for a period of time. In other words, they're trying to rein you in, they're trying to give you a timeout, to treat us like children that we can't think for ourselves. And this is terrifying to me. Now I'm going to give you another example, Roger. I started this show, oh, 10 years ago now. I started it kind of on a lark. I wasn't quite sure where we were sitting and where we weren't sitting. So I had a bunch of JFK researchers on, uh, all the top-notch people, including a woman by the name of Sherry Feaster, who's a senior crime yes. scene analyst. She, She's excellent. I, I have read her books and I have followed her career. She's terrific. When she came on the show, Roger, and she told me what her research found, folks, which is essentially there is a second shooter, which means what? conspiracy right away yes mm -hmm. i had the same shaking feeling because there was an agenda to get rid of the president there was something behind it and something behind even more nefariously the cover-up what do you think what's happening right now with the files that are, are going to be released in 2017 october uh, my book the man who killed kennedy the case against lbj makes the case that John Kennedy was murdered by a conspiracy, although I prefer to call it a plot, that included the Central Intelligence Agency, angry about the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, Big Texas Oil, angry about Kennedy's attempts to repeal the oil depletion allowance, which gave them a favorable track tax treatment that saved them hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, as well as organized crime, whom John Kennedy had taken a million dollars from in the, in the 1960 election in return for a promise brokered by his father, Ambassador Joseph Kennedy, that John Kennedy would drop the attempts by the Eisenhower administration to deport Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficante, two of the biggest gangsters of the day. After John Kennedy was elected, um, Joe Kennedy is felled by a stroke which incapacitates him Robert Kennedy goes after the two mobsters with the full force of the federal government. He actually briefly succeeds in deporting uh, um, Marcello. Uh, and everybody here is, is, has their own motive, but Lyndon Johnson has the most immediate motive because the U.S. Justice Department under John, Robert Kennedy is investigating corruption of LBJ and the Billy Sal Estes scandal and the Bobby Baker scandal two criminal enterprises Johnson was involved in. So he's a man staring into the abyss. That's why Johnson convinces Kennedy to go to Dallas, that, that Texas Governor John Connolly, a close Johnson ally, former Johnson administrative assistant, insists on the route through Dealey Plaza, which violates all the Secret Service's rules about motorcades. Uh, and of course, as I'm sure Sherry Feaster told you, the doctors at Parkland in Dallas determined that there are bullet wounds in John Kennedy from the front and the rear, that there's a blowout, uh, you know, on the back of his head, which demonstrates uh, the shots from the front, and as well as the shot through the throat. Later, Congressman Gerald Ford, a member of the Warren Commission, would purposely um, alter the actual autopsy record and the actual autopsy map, which is like a you know, a chart of the body, to move the description of that wound to the upper neck to conceal, uh, you know, the shot from the rear. So um, I think Feaster is a terrific uh, researcher, and you could only pull off this kind of cover-up in 1963 when there was three television networks and a handful of national newspapers. The Dallas Morning News has the FBI actually show up at their office before they go to print and rewrite their front page story because J. Edgar Hoover and Lyndon Johnson decided within minutes that Lee Harvey Oswald did this and he acted alone. In fact, the, uh, the FBI and the Dallas Police Department have a bulletin describing Oswald's height and weight and coloring before Oswald has even been identified as the perp. So uh, it, it is most definitely... Stuff. 
most definitely a conspiracy. Uh, there's, you know, a, a lot of the people in the JFK research community like to fight with each other. And there are some who say, no, no, it was the mob. It was all the mob. And others say, no, it was the Central Intelligence Agency. I, I, I agree with all of them. They all have a role. They all have a motive. It's also true that the international banking community wants to get rid of John Kennedy. Good God, he's talking about going back to a sound dollar backed by silver or gold. And that's the last thing they want. So he, Johnson uh, recognizes that Kennedy has made powerful enemies in his drive for reform. And then there, while there is some dispute about this, it is pretty clear that John Kennedy had figured out the folly of Vietnam and that he was not going to proceed, as Lyndon Johnson would do immediately, to get in there with both feet and every dollar we had. So there are many motives, uh, but what's most interesting about this is a memo found in the CIA's files in about 1965 that says, anytime any commentator or any citizen questions the Warren Commission and the, and the, and the suggestion that Oswald committed the murder and acted alone, you are directed to call them a conspiracy theorist. This is where the term comes from. There's a wonderful quote here I have to quote because this made me laugh. My belly laugh. God knows, people that know me know I have a big belly. So when I belly laugh, folks, this fills the room. Now, Roger got into politics specifically to further John F. Kennedy's presidential campaign. Now, here's his quote. I remember going through the cafeteria. He was just a kid, right, folks? Cafeteria line and telling everyone in that line that Nixon, who was John Kennedy's adversary in the 1960 election, was and later my mentor. Exactly. Later my mentor, ironically. And we'll talk about that for sure. Now, he said that every kid in that line, he told Nixon was in favor of school on Saturdays. <laughs> this is how I learned the first political trick. <laughs> this is how I learned the value of disinformation. Now, my reasons for being for John Kennedy were a little thin. I was for Kennedy over Nixon because I thought Kennedy's hair was much better. My parents were for John Kennedy, despite the fact that they were Republicans, because my parents were Catholics, as I am, and they liked the idea of our first Catholic president. Although I kind of suspect my mother stuck with Nixon, but I'm not certain. Uh, so I didn't have any political moorings. I didn't understand ideology or philosophy. I was going on the, the fact that John Kennedy, uh, financed by his father, the bootlegger uh, uh, gangster Joseph P. Kennedy, uh, essentially goes to Madison Avenue and he forms and, and he hires, or I should say he pays for the first modern image campaign using the most sophisticated advertising techniques of the day, the early 60s. Uh, and John Kennedy is portrayed to the country as dashing and charming and handsome. And by the way, he was all those things. He didn't have much of a legislative record. He was far more interested in chasing women than he was, you know, passing Senate bills. But he was, he was a very balanced person. He, he had a, a certain charm, a certain charisma. Uh, and you compare that with the kind of sweaty, um, you know, overachiever of my, my mentor, Richard Nixon. And even I, at 10 years old, kind of fell for it. I know years later you worked with Arlen Specter. Now, folks, Arlen Specter was the fellow who came up with the magic bullet theory. In other words, the bullet comes in at a downward angle, a serious downward angle, through Kennedy's back, and then somehow, miraculously, it flies up in the air, comes out of Kennedy's um, neck in the front, and then goes on and makes five further wounds in Governor Connolly sitting in front of him. And the bullet comes out absolutely pristine. So, I mean, this is a ridiculous, I call it the Cirque du Soleil bullet, just to bring it up to modern era. Now, I know you worked with him. Did you ever discuss this with him? And what was I, his I can't insights? even tell you how many, I cannot tell you how many times over martinis we argued about this. Um, and I learned a lot more about it when I wrote my book, things I did not know in the 80s when I was working closely with Arlen, who I must tell you I had great affection for. He's a 28-year-old prosecutor. He, is, uh, he isn't really the staff director at the Warren Commission, but the staff director has a full-time law firm gig, as does every member of the commission. So they're really absent. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court 
the director of the FBI and the former director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, who you mentioned earlier, basically called him in and say, Mr. Spector, we have concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald perpetrated this murder, that he is a, a communist nut, and that he acted alone. Now, you go find the evidence that proves that. We're done here. And in fact, prior to the so-called magic bullet theory, uh, he had a neatly wrapped up theory that, that included three bullets all shot from the front, uh, for which there was pretty decent forensic evidence, at least kind of half the case. This falls apart when a man named James Tagg, who's just a, uh, you know, a working stiff automobile salesman, decides he's going to go down and see the president's motorcade, goes down to Dealey Plaza. While he's standing on the sidewalk, a bullet hits the sidewalk, and a, a, piece of, a small piece of concrete bounces up and grazes his cheek, and he's bleeding. And a Dallas police, a Dallas Sheriff's Department officer, deputy, actually was standing there and saw this. So the deputy insisted that Haig needed to go to the Dallas Police Department and the FBI and, and tell them what had happened. And, of course, he did. And then he read the newspaper. Again, there was only three bullets. It became pretty clear that they were ignoring everything that Tig had told them. Shortly thereafter, Tig was in a bar. And somehow he got into a conversation with Jim Lair, later of the Lear McNeil, you know, television program. But at that point, an, an associated press reporter. And he tells Lair his story. Lair splashes that on every front page in the country. And suddenly Arlen Specter is calling Mr. Tagan for consultation. They, they have to come up with some explanation. Now we have one more bullet than we were supposed to. Uh, and that is the birth of the so-called single bullet theory, the magic bullet that changes direction several times. Uh, to, to Spector's credit, I honestly think he hypnotized himself into believing it was true. You could not get it off. He, he would argue vociferously about why it was correct. I finally got to him when I said, and he said, you know, we, re we recreated the whole thing and it checked out perfectly. I said, Senator, John Kennedy was riding in a Lincoln Continental. You created it with a, with a convertible Cadillac, which is four and a half inches higher, and Kennedy would have been riding four and a half inches higher in the seat. So your entire test is off. He was furious at me. I was right about that, by the way. And then later, I actually got him to admit, because I showed it to him graphically, that there were frames missing from the famous Zapruder film. Zapruder being a local businessman who had a, you know, handheld movie camera, had actually inadvertently filmed the assassination. The, the FBI seizes his film. We now know, as I describe in my book, The, the Man Who Killed Kennedy, that, that the government sent that out to Kodak for manipulation, and they removed a number of frames. This explains why Dan Rather, who was one of the few journalists who saw it in, in, in contemporaneously because the government locked this, this film up for almost 30 years. He comes out and says, John Kennedy's head snapped back violently. Well, that's not true. His head snapped forward and to the left, forward and to the left. The point, of course, is it wasn't that Rather was lying. He had been shown a doctored film. James Tate went down there. He was on the show, by the way, and God love James. He's passed on now. But you can find that show in the archives, and also you can also find Sherry Feaster's show in the archives as well. And she can explain that theory about the frontal shot in more clarity. Now, I had the honor, I should tell you, Roger, to uh, interview Ted Sorensen just before he died. I have his last interview, actually, and he unloaded. Um, folks, it just wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald. Let me put it that way. I'm working on a documentary right now to bring this to the forefront. But let me tell you, I have him on tape, and it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald. There was a well, conspiracy. I, and I think that the Kennedy people knew that. Uh, Evelyn Lincoln, John Kennedy's personal secretary, on the eve of his leaving for Dallas, um, she complains that Johnson has been harassing her about who's going to sit where in the motorcade. And, and the president says, you know what, you're not going to have to worry about Lyndon much longer because he's not going to be on the ticket in 1964. I'm not sure who, he, who is, although he says I might take Terry Sanford, then the governor of North Carolina. But I can tell you it won't be Lyndon. 
on the plane back from Dallas, she sits down and handwrites a list of the suspects of those who uh, who she thought had been involved in the murder. And of course, Lyndon Baines Johnson is first on her list. Yeah, that's a true story, folks. I should also interject, though. I did ask Ted Sorensen about, not about the assassination in Johnson, but if Johnson was going to be on the ticket. And he assured me that Johnson was going to be on the ticket. And he gave a very good reason, actually, Roger. He said because Kennedy was so gung-ho to get the Civil Rights Bill passed, he knew that the only way to get the South to support it was to keep Johnson on the ticket. Yeah, I would make the counter-argument. Sure. Who was it who talked him out of proceeding on civil rights at every turn? Why, it was Vice President Lyndon Johnson who said, Mr. President, the Southern bulls in the Senate will turn on you and you'll get nothing done if you push, uh, you know, this nigra stuff is a direct quote. So Johnson preserves that for himself. As you know, Lyndon Johnson was a lifelong segregationist, personally killed every Voting Rights Act, every every uh, Fair Housing Act, every Anti-Discrimination Act until 1958, when uh, Vice President Richard Nixon is able to corral enough Republicans to pass with liberal Democrats a civil rights bill. And then Johnson adds an amendment, a poison pill, that says anyone who violates this law will be tried in a state, not federal court. Well, no jury in Mississippi will convict a white man of a crime against a black man. And they know it. So he even undercuts the 58 Act, which he pushed to try to burnish his credentials for a presidential bid. Uh, at the time, Roy Wilkins, civil rights leader, said that Johnson's bill was worse than no bill at all. Uh, but today, as you know, he is remembered as the great progenitor of civil rights. Um, the, the movie Selma which is really worth seeing, correctly shows that Johnson was opposed to the 65 Act. No, it was not his idea to tell King to march through Selma. In fact, he was opposed to it. King was playing power politics with LBJ and forcing his hand. King knew that when the American people saw civil rights demonstrators being clubbed and beaten on the streets of Selma, that it would move the nation. And it did. Folks, I'm going to jump to his Roger's new book now called The Making of the President. I'm just looking at the time, 2016, and how Donald Trump orchestrated a revolution. Now, there's a wonderful quote in here. I hope you don't mind me reading it. And it is Roger's quote. Conspiracy theorist is what they call you when you refuse to accept the conventional or media-backed narrative of any particular event. Politics is a game of smoke and mirrors where the reality of most things is far more complex than what the rubes are being told on the TV networks. Now, I know you've been banned from CNN. The FBI is doing an investigation on you. There's all kinds of stuff about Julian Assange going around. Is this part, do you feel, of a concerted effort to discredit you? Actually, I think I'm a, I'm a handy tool here. Look, I have a reputation as a no-nonsense partisan. Uh, I'm a, I'm a bare-knuckles practitioner of the political arts, and I'm, a, and I'm highly identified as an extremely partisan Republican. It's essential for the, for the Obama administration in what we call the deep state, which is really what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, the careerists in the intelligence agencies and in the Defense Department, to promulgate the myth that Donald Trump or his campaign were colluding with the Russians because they used that as the legal justification for surveillance on some individuals in the Trump camp, including yours truly. If they cannot come up with proof of Russian collusion or even more significant evidence of it, it will become apparent that surveillance of Trump as, as, as uh, sifted through by Susan Rice was for purely political motives. That's Watergate times 10, and they know it. And people will go to jail, as many of the people in Nixon's top entourage went to jail. That is, that is a real problem for them, which is why they are so desperate to spin this yard. I have nothing to fear from any investigation into Russian collusion with the Trump campaign because it literally does not exist. It did not happen. Uh, I believe members of the House and Senate Intelligence Committee have defamed me. They only have immunity 
when they're on the floor of the House and Senate, not when they're in the hallways, uh, and they have made a number of false assertions. Let's knock them out of the way very quickly. Because I predicted that that John Podesta's business dealings in Russia would come under public scrutiny in mid-August, which indeed they did in over 100 newspaper articles, including Bloomberg.com, Wall Street Journal, and so on, that gets extrapolated to Stone knew that WikiLeaks was hacking and releasing Podesta's email. No, I didn't. I never said anything of the kind. That's called conjecture, supposition, coincidence perhaps, but certainly no evidence that would stand up in a court of law. I was doing substantial research on Podesta, as was Dr. Jerome Corsi, who had given me a blockbuster memo on August 5th outlining all of the shady deals the Podesta brothers and the Clinton Foundation was involved in in Russia. That is what I referred to. And then later, um, I had a source who happened to be a, a mutual friend of Assange uh, and a friend of mine. Assange now denies this. He can say whatever he wants. His operation leaks. That's a problem. Uh, and he told me, quite simply, that WikiLeaks had a treasure trove of devastating political information on Hillary Clinton, and they would release it beginning in early October. Now, this is not exactly a state secret because WikiLeaks tweeted this on July 31st, and I made the prediction on August 14th. So, um, you know, that does not mean, as some have said, that I knew the exact timing and the exact content and the scope of what they had. I knew none of those things. I knew exactly what I told you. Now people come to me and say, well, who did you learn that from? Does the New York Times give up its sources? I'm not giving up mine. I'm not going to get a journalist fired. The point is the information turned out to be true. Doesn't mean I conspired with Julian Assange, who I've never spoken to. But in the government's narrative, Assange is a Russian asset. And WikiLeaks is a Russian covert operation, which is pure, which is just a pile of unadulterated, steaming BS. They can't prove any of that. So here's how it works, Brent. They say, well, that's our assessment. Listen for that code word, folks. Anytime the intelligence services discuss an assessment, it's an admission that they're guessing, that they don't really know anything. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts for yours right now, nightfrightshow.com. Are you worried that perhaps we talked about the military-industrial complex before and Eisenhower's famous warning, I would presume to Kennedy to be very careful, and I think the military-industrial complex indeed was part of the reason why Kennedy was murdered. Do you fear that that same military-industrial complex culture is still present today and may have an influence on Donald Trump? I'll tell you why. We know that Donald Trump's just increased the military budget by $54 billion. Is that his choice, or is he being pressured, do you feel, Roger? Well, in all honesty, that's, that doesn't bother me so much, because in all honesty, in the campaign, he said repeatedly that he was, going to, he was going to rebuild our military strength, and it would cost a lot of money. Where I think the evidence is, is that the, the front line of the Central Intelligence Agency and the other intelligence agencies are the ones who leaked the surveillance of General Flynn, leaked the surveillance of Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, some guy named Carter Page, which is a felony, by the way, if indeed we were surveilled under the auspices and authority of a super secret FISA warrant, which is what I believe. You see, the FISA court doesn't require probable cause or evidence. The government can say, we want to surveil Roger Stone just because we want to. You can't do that in federal court. A federal judge would ask you, what evidence of a crime do you have that would justify that kind of violation of my constitutional rights? So we have seen the Central Intelligence Agency leaking to embarrass the president. How do we know about the awkwardness of some of the president's early phone conversations with the leaders of other countries? How would we know about that? Except for the fact that the Central Intelligence Agency is listening in, or really it's the NSA is listening in. That's my concern as well. Um, we have to trust somebody through the intelligence agencies to get information so we're able to go and make some kind of statement military-wise in, say, Syria, for example. Where do we believe them? Where do we not believe them? Where is that fine line? 
How does, how does Donald Trump come to assess what is real, what is misinformation, what is manipulation? This remains very much to be seen on the basis that I think there's a high probability that Assad's so-called chemical attack on his own people was a false flag. In my experience in 40 years in American politics, people don't do illogical things that aren't in their interest. Now, we know that Assad has, uh, has signed an agreement with the UN, certified by his allies, the Russians, saying that he has no, weapon, no chemical weapons. So using them would embarrass his patrons in Russia, something I don't think he can afford to do. And I would argue he's had the upper hand against the rebels most recently. And he surely is savvy enough to know that the international world community would come down on him immediately if he appeared to be violating his agreement vis-a-vis -vis chemical weapons. What was the goal of those who staged what may have been a false flag? To try to push Trump towards war. They figured he would go for the airstrike. And you know, because I'm sure you read this, what their next recommendation was. Mr. President, we must send 150,000 men and women, boots on the ground, and just wipe them up. And the president, to his credit, despite the fact that not a single person on the White House staff was disagreeing with that recommendation, said, no, we're not going to do that. That's why I love Donald Trump. We certainly don't want to get ourselves embroiled in a war without a good reason. Without a good and this reason. was the whole. This was the whole uh, raison and d'etre of his campaign for president. This was. This is the most basic element of Trumpism. No more international invent, uh, interventionism. No longer should we go around the globe sticking our nose into to issues where we have no vital national interest and spending millions of dollars, if not billions, in borrowed money and the blood of American men and women when we have no inherent vital interest at stake. So Trump, to his credit, has done the right thing. In retrospect, I guess I came around to the view that the strike in Syria had such vast geopolitical uh, repercussions vis-a-vis -vis the North Koreans, the Iranians, and the Chinese. I could see why it was probably irresistible as kind of a masterstroke uh, on the international stage. Now suddenly the Chinese, guess what? They're helping us try to disarm the North Koreans, something that they declined to do under Barack Obama. In your book, The Making of a President 2016, you compared Donald Trump a lot to Harry Truman. And this is what just triggered in my mind the fact that Harry Truman dropped the bomb, not just to end the war, but there was other messages sent specifically to the Russians at the same time. Did Donald Trump adopt a little bit of that piece of strategy, do you think, from Harry Truman? Well, uh, the, the comparison with Truman had more to do with the fact that Truman and Trump, having been counted out by all the pollsters and all the pundits, refused to accept the prediction that they were going to lose. And they both went out and physically did something about it. Truman launches uh, a a train trip, a whistle-stop tour across the country. Uh, and he is, he is um, far behind in the polls, and he's getting sparse crowds as he begins in the east, but by the time he gets to California, he has so stepped up the attack rhetoric on the Republicans that he's drawing enormous crowds, and the momentum in the race shifts to Truman late, and he pulls off what was up till then the greatest upset in American history. Likewise, Donald Trump, for the last two weeks, does four or five campaign stops a day in the heart of Democratic territory in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. And Hillary Clinton is back in Chappaqua in her pajamas, looking at swatches, picking out the fabric for the curtains in her Oval Office. She was like Tom Dewey, who was Truman's opponent, overconfident, cold, aloof, uh, and she threw it away. She literally threw it away. One of the things I wanted to ask you, you know, I had Chris Peranto on the show. Chris Peranto, folks, was in Benghazi that night in 2012, um, September 11th. And he was in three firefights that night. The movie, are, are you there, my friend? Have I lost you? I think I just lost Roger. One second, I'll get him back. Bum, ba, 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 little, little music in the background. Oh, he's gone offline. I don't know what's happened there. Anti-group call. Let me just try and get him back here. Anti-group call. Call mobile. 
Let's see if we can get him. Maybe he's lost his internet connection, or maybe it's the NSA. I always make that joke, you know, because when I used to do this show from Sudbury, Canada, any time, honest to God, any time I would talk about the JFK assassination. You, you, see the, you, you see the NSA is still playing with these phones. I was just making that same comment, my friend. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah, the point I was going to make was the fact that I had Chris Peranto on the show. He was one of the fellows that fought in Benghazi that night. And he just felt so let down by the State Department, Hillary Clinton. Do you think that played a big part also in the bringing down of the Clinton electoral machine? You know, it should have, and I wrote a short book on it, but it really didn't because the mainstream media would really not expose their lies until much later. I mean, the idea that the attack on our mission was, was uh, you know, was put forward and spearheaded by a, uh, a rabble, a mob, upset about the showing of an anti-Islamic video in Turkey, that's a complete fabrication. It had nothing to do with it. The people who attacked our mission were all wearing identical uniforms. They had, all had identical weapons, and they very clearly had a floor plan of the compound because they knew where the safe room was. So Hillary Clinton and Susan Rice, with the help of uh, the CIA director, George Tennant, promulgate a lie, just a, like a flat out lie. And they manage, they only have to keep the lie alive for one week and the election happens. And of course, Romney never catches on to what's really going on. Uh, it certainly should have. It was an example of the of the of the outrageous dishonesty of Hillary Clinton, but I, I think it was a factor, but I would not call it the factor. Netflix documentary, Get Me Roger Stone. Have you seen it? Have you had it? I have. Uh, I finally saw it Sunday at the and? world premiere. Was at the Tribeca Film Festival. Uh, it's lively. Uh, it's um, you know it's largely accurate. Uh, it is, um, you know, I, I, I never thought that Netflix or any mainstream media outlet was going to make a documentary that was a love letter to Roger Stone. First of all, nobody would go see it. So it's a balanced portrait. They, there's some criticism in there that I'm not prepared to go dispute because it's not worth it. But by and large, I do think it kind of shows you the inside skinny on how Donald Trump got elected, and what it was I saw in Trump earlier than many others. What was that? What did you see in Donald well, I, Trump? I met him in 1979 when I was sent to New York to organize Ronald Reagan's campaign for president, and I was immediately taken with his his size. I don't mean his physical size, but his standing, his stature, his command presence. He's extraordinarily charismatic and mag and magnetic. You you when you meet him, when you see him live, you want to like him. He's imminently likable. He's very approachable. He, he, he can talk to anybody, cab driver, shopkeeper, you know, boot black. He, he, he's, he likes those people. He likes talking to them more than he likes talking to Fortune 500 executives. Uh, and uh, I saw that magnetism. And, of course, he had no interest in politics at the time. He was still bid, building his business. Uh, we did make a trip to New Hampshire in 1988. Uh, and his name was floated, which he enjoyed. Later in 2000, we had an actual exploratory effort to uh, ascertain whether he could, um, you know, seek the Reform Party nomination. Uh, and 2012, we looked very hard at challenging Romney. I was a paid consultant to that effort. Uh, Donald hired me himself, as he has for every one of the gigs in which I was engaged with him. Uh, and then in this election, the time was right. After eight years of Barack Obama, you were more likely to have the American people prepared to choose, you know, an outsider. Somebody with no government experience. Right. The American people were hungry for something completely different because they had lost faith in the two-party duopoly. They had totally lost faith in all political institutions, Congress, the presidency, and, and most importantly, big media. What has to happen in the United States to make a more even playing field where Joe Average can rise up? You know, I, I think of Richard Nixon in the old days. He was born in poverty, let's face it, you know, and yes. he rose up to become president. Can that same thing happen today? I think it can. 
but it is highly unlikely because of the financial uh, situation. Donald well, Trump's greatest asset go going into this campaign is his universal name ID. Everybody knows who Donald Trump is long before he runs for president. So he doesn't have the intermediary step that a Marco Rubio or a or a uh, uh, or a Ted Cruz has of having to first educate people about who they are. Would the American electoral system entertain something like we have in Canada, which is a cap on the amount of money an individual, a corporation, a union, anybody can donate to a single candidate or a party? Well, the courts have found the caps to be unconstitutional, but one way you could do it, and I kind of like this, is you wouldn't have to spend multi-millions of dollars if CNN and Fox and ABC, NBC, CBS would donate the time to the American people rather than selling it. And each party got, as they do in Britain, an equal amount of time. You know what, and Roger? Could... That's exactly what Ted Sorensen said to me. Exactly what he said to me. I mean, I think that that's a, a reform. The problem you have is some people say, well, let's go to public finance. Well, Thomas Jefferson said forcing a man to spend his money on something he doesn't believe in is tyranny. I don't want my money going to Hillary Clinton. I don't believe in Hillary Clinton. So uh, I think that uh, – and there are First Amendment rights there, as the courts have found. Greater transparency is part of the answer. If a corporation gives a huge amount of money, the American people should know about it immediately, and that way they can ascertain whether there is some bad actor here. Roger Stone's our guest tonight, folks. His book is called The Making of the President 2016. You could reach that uh, link to buy the book at our website. Also, Roger, I want to come at this from a different direction. Let's fast forward to 2020. All of a sudden, you're in 2020. And of all people, Hillary Clinton wants to run again, and she wants you to be part of the campaign advisory team. Now, never mind if you would do it or not. Let's just assume for a second you did do it. How would you turn her campaign around to make it a winning campaign? I, I don't know that, I, that I'm up to the task. I mean, that's part of this entire Russian question. The Democrats seem to be unwilling to, uh, to admit that they nominated a poor, weak candidate who was out of energy and out of ideas. Uh, so thus, we had to invent this idea that the Russians had elected Trump. I just don't think that um, that her – I think her candidacy was doomed from the beginning because it was based on this supposition that the voter turnout would be identical as it was for Barack Obama. That was never going to happen. That she would get the same number of votes uh, in, say, the African-American community uh, and that the turnout among African-Americans would be the same. That was never going to happen. So I think it was based on a false premise. So in 2020, if there is another candidate, how would you get the Democrats into power? Well, they need to stop basing everything on identity politics and go back to their roots. I mean, first of all, they have abandoned Israel, for whom they have been the most traditional supporter. Jewish voters in the United States are overwhelmingly traditionally Democratic. But the Democrats seem to be more interested in covering up the the dangers of Islamic terrorism than standing up for Israel. So they've been radicalized in that sense. And then secondarily, they really are the party of wealthy elites. They're the party of Silicon Valley and the billionaires. They're no longer the party of weak working people. I could say that of the Republicans as well under the Bushes, but I think Donald Trump is in the process of reclaiming our birthright. Isn't that a bit of an oxymoron, though? Because, you know, Donald comes from a rich background as well, and yet he's being portrayed as the common man's hero? Well, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was an aristocrat from a wealthy background, but he Fair was enough. considered Fair the enough. champion of the working people. You don't have to be... I, and I also would argue that despite the fact that Trump went to an Ivy League school and he comes from a family that has achieved some wealth in the, in, the first, in, the, in the second generation, that he never loses his Queen's roots. He still talks like a normal person. He still communicates in colloquial English, and he talks the way people talk around the, the, uh, you know, the dinner table. And I, I think that common touch has served him very well. And what's the future for you, my friend? What does the future hold for you? Or do you see a libel suit coming against the people that have slandered you? Well, 
that's a possibility. I'm I'm very proud of this book, The Making of the President, How Donald Trump Orchestrated an American Revolution. I really commend it to your listeners. You can get it at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. I'm going to write uh, another book shortly, um, and I I have not yet announced the topic, but I'm hard at work at it. This will be my this would be my uh, sixth book, uh, and uh, I'm doing a weekly broadcast for Infowars.com on Wednesdays at 2. They would like me to go to two hours. But they'd really like me to go to every day. I'm not sure that I can undertake that. It's I have great respect for what you do now that I'm doing it. It takes a lot of preparation to run a show like this. People don't realize how much preparation Just a requires. little bit. <laughs> but then you get great dressed guys like you to come on the show. You know, so I'm yeah, I, let's face it, I, I have a feeling. Fa- what can I tell you? It's yeah, but a, I have a face for radio, as my as many of my friends keep pointing out. Well, you may have the face for it, but I've definitely got the body for radio. Trust me on that. <laughs> what really pisses you off the most in the world right now, and what would you do to fix it? Uh, I, I don't think Donald Trump gets credit for many of the things that he has done. The, the sea change in the attitude of the Chinese is a perfect example. There's also, I have a long piece at StoneColdTruth.com about the first hundred days and all of the regulatory and rules changes that he has been able to effectuate. So, uh, you know, the the this move towards censorship is the greatest single threat that we face. This is it's more than just, you know, playing with the algorithms of your show or mine. It's much broader than that. They want to silence any voice of dissent uh, against the established order and the two-party duopoly that has been running things for 30 years. And let's face it, they have run them into the ground. The Democrats and the Republicans, the Bushes and the Clintons working together have given us endless foreign wars erosion of our civil liberties, massive debt and spending and and borrowing, an immigration system that leaves our borders porous and our streets and neighborhoods unsafe, uh, trade agreements that have sucked the jobs out of America, and a foreign policy that's extremely expensive but doesn't seem to have any common theme to it, unless, of course, we're trying to strengthen the Muslim Brotherhood and set them up throughout the region of the Middle East. So the American people, uh, I think, revolted against that. The and status quo. Now, and now they are attempting to use censorship to roll back the tides of history. It's very, do, very dangerous. Do you see not only social media, but do you see Hollywood playing a role in this as well? I think they've always, the, the, you know, the, having been ostracized when I went out there for a book signing, they've always veered to the left. If you watch these award ceremonies, whether the Academy Awards or the enemies, you see everybody rushing to the microphone to denounce Trump because it's good for their image. It, it's really, it, it's really nauseating. Yeah, it is despicable. Um, I have to agree with you on that one. Folks, the book is called The Making of the President 2016. Our guest tonight has been Roger Stone. Roger, I want to thank you so much. Continued success with your career. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome here anytime, my friend. Many, many thanks. I appreciate being here. Thank you, my friend. Take care. You too. I'm Brent Holland. See you all next time.